All right. It's December 2020. We survived a year of COVID and it's time for another episode. I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill and Mills. And uh, this is the podcast where we talk about a couple of businesses that are for sale, small businesses, and we analyze them. Sometimes we like them, but mostly we poop on them. And then, uh, so today we have two deals to talk about. Mills, I think you're up first. You got uh, you got one around crawl spaces. Tell us about it. Yeah. So uh, full disclosure, I, I know these guys. They're here in my hometown in South Carolina. And um, yeah, so I, I'm going to try not to let my bias come through. But Crawl Space Medic is a franchisor. So we talked about franchises, I think a couple episodes ago with Orange Theory. So Crawl Space Medic is in the you know, in the business of selling franchise units, but the real core of their work is doing wood rot removal, vapor barriers, sump pumps, French drains, basically anything and everything in a crawl space. And the majority of their work comes as a result of, of kind of water related issues or humidity issues. It usually comes up as a result of a repair addendum. So if you're selling your house, you know, uh, the buyer gets an inspection and I would say more frequently than not, you know, there's some issues, some wood rot or you're, you know, you had something in your bathroom that was leaking and part of the floor needs to be torn out, which leads to an average ticket of about $3,500. I think what helps that probably is that, you know, if you're selling your house, a lot of times these things have to be done if you're, if the buyer's going to, or if you as the buyer are going to use a mortgage. Hey, uh, Mills, and maybe I'm just an idiot in terms of construction and stuff, but what is special about this kind of problem case versus, say, just general construction and stuff like that? Like, what makes crawl spaces and these types of problems unique? Well, so I guess in particular, if it's coinciding with uh, the sale of a piece of real estate, if you want to get a, a FHA loan, you have to have a clean CL100 letter, which just is basically saying there's no termite damage in the house, no active termite damage, and there's no active wood rot. So, you know, things like the gutters might be falling off or, you know, the house needs to be repainted or like, you know what, we have some shingles that are loose. That kind of stuff, while it's important, is still like fairly discretionary. When you get into the crawl space, you start to get into what I would say is a little bit trickier or higher technical area because, of kind of engineering and foundation issues. And so you can't just go in and say, hey, we're just going to cut out these floor joists and you know put back in some new ones if you don't really know what you're doing. It'd be similar to like, hey, we're going to take a wall out of our house and hang you know, a header and open up you know, two rooms and make them one bigger one. Yeah. It's a little bit more technical than just, you know, hey, can I get somebody to put you know, shiplap in my den or something like that? That makes sense. Okay, cool. So there's a very there's a very narrow kind of problem space here that requires specialization, kind of like a, a foundation, what the equivalent of foundation repair as a subset of contracting. So totally makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. So the uh, to get involved with the franchise, the initial upfront requirements they state are somewhere between one hundred and two hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and some of that I think can vary on you know. Are you buying a pickup truck? Or are you leasing it? You know, um, the different tools, it's very kind of CapEx light though. You're basically talking about guys going down into a crawl space and doing carpentry. It's like, you know, wood framing. So you've got 
circular saws and sawzalls and drills, but you, you don't have to have like, you know, forklifts and, and big kind of fancy pieces of equipment per se. The average revenue per unit is about a million dollars top line. And they state that the average gross profit is uh, it's about $500,000. So about 50% gross margins. So that just make sure I understand that they're, they are indeed lumping the cost of delivering the services into their, into their cost of goods sold. So yeah, would, my guess is it's probably all job costed the labor and materials mm-hmm. and, and then customer acquisition costs, but any, you know, general overhead and, you know, admin and all those kinds of things are probably not broken out into cogs. Do we have a sense for the magnitude of that type of stuff? For a typical franchisee, their I think their average EBITDA margins are around twenty percent, maybe slightly north of twenty percent. So it's it's higher margin construction. You know, it's not a typical kind of GC or commoditized sub like interior paint or something like that. Okay, so your typical typical guy is bringing in a million dollars a top line and taking home two hundred two hundred fifty k. Yep, yep. I think that's probably a safe assumption. So maybe we can we can riff off of this. We had some dialogue with the owner and Michael, you had specific questions, but we can go in whatever direction on this. Yeah. Well, so f- first of all, before we got in the air, there was uh there was a suggestion that I hate this. I actually think it's pretty cool. So I want I want to be fully <laughs> and the proof is I actually sent I've sent this to a friend of mine. I'm like, hey, this would be a good franchise for you. So just as the person who seems to hate every deal, I want to tell you I don't I don't hate this one. So <laughs> But I think they're they're with all of these small contractor things, right? You're what I see as the value proposition for me as a franchisee is like help me solve the biggest problem with being a franchisee, which is how do I get a consistent stream of business? And that's why I was asking Evan and the guys that are 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 promoting this and running it, you know, how are you gonna help me do that? And he he didn't really give me I felt like a great answer. <laughs> so that was that was the one thing I'm kind of like, well, like you mean you want me to do the digital marketing? Like I'm supposed to be a crawl space expert. Like why am I why am I doing that? You guys should be doing it centrally. So and that's maybe just me misunderstanding the value prop and the deck I know is just a draft. So yeah. So as our as our maybe I'll, I'll dub myself our resident digital marketing guy. I actually did not think uh, the description of how they did the digital marketing was was that bad. I actually thought it made a lot of sense. So for the listeners, the way that so Michael basically said, he said, I think the hardest part of this business is how do we get leads? So, hey, franchisor, tell me how you help me get leads. And the way they do it is the franchisor will run kind of broad in-market ads, you know, to raise awareness of the, of the, the franchisor crawlspace medic generally. But if you're a franchisee, you are responsible for doing what amounts to kind of your local Google direct response. So getting your business listed on Google local, they'll give you, they'll kind of help you set up a website, doing some local Google advertising. So when people search crawlspace medic Charleston or crawlspace medic Charlotte or wherever, they are going to come up towards the top. Uh, And then after you do a job, the franchisee is responsible for soliciting reviews to kind of build up their star ratings, adding pictures of the jobs they've done specifically, uh, et cetera. Which is absolutely the way that local service digital marketing like this is done. Um, it's all very Google centric. And one thing that I actually did like about their answer is they didn't send us this packet, but 
from speaking or from reading their description, they send the franchisees, it sounds like a pretty prescriptive playbook of here's exactly how you get listed on Google Local. Here's exactly how you do the ads. After you have a job, here's exactly how you follow up and get uh, the star ratings and reviews, et cetera. So it seemed to me like there was work on the franchisees part. It didn't seem like there was a ton of a ton of cost. I mean, some Google advertising. But this is the type of thing where if you believe that there is a market for this service, you kind of also have to believe that there is Google search query volume. And I didn't have time to check Google search query volume before this podcast. But if there is a search query volume and you just kind of have to run the local playbook to show up for it, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that could work. Uh, yeah. I want to talk to existing franchisees to see if it actually did work. Yeah. Um, okay. But I thought they gave more support than some franchisors would give on the kind of the local stuff because they gave the playbook of here's exactly how to do it. Right. Well, yeah, I think where I got maybe tripped up is, or, you know, are, are you expecting me to do ad placement? Are you expecting me to do, you know, some of that stuff that you're saying is centralized? And then I think them having the centralized call center to, to qualify leads and then turn those over. And then the local people do their part, right? Like networking with the, with the real estate agents, like the title companies, like, you know, get following up, getting reviews. That all is just, that, that totally makes sense. Okay. And so that's more consistent with what I've seen from other franchisors. And I think the way you're, you're right on that's the, that, that sounds much better than the way the deck made it look. And I guess that's kind of also a byproduct of where their, their deck is at this point. It's, it's kind of rough. Like there's some stuff in here that these things are well designed. It's just a little uh, light on details. It's beautiful. The content needs some work. Though I do appreciate that seemingly on every slide, they've managed to put a picture of their team in there. <laughs> like every single day, I was like, guys, guys, I've seen you guys in front of your house. I've seen you guys in front of other people's house. I've seen you guys in front of a desk. I've seen you guys talking to a customer. I've yeah. seen you in black and white and color. It's <laughs> it's pretty adorable. So they do have a good designer. It's pretty, great photo shoot. Yeah. Pretty beautiful, good photography. You know, it's uh, in terms of the detail and making sure people understand this, it it's right on. So, <laughs> so one thing I'll also say about this business. One thing I like about this business is that I think it perfectly illustrates the value of franchising because this business is not a hard business. Many people listening to this podcast, I would think our audience could start this business and would not necessarily need to franchise it, right? I mean, like just from kind of hearing about what it is, going to their website, you go, okay, I get this. I can do local Google marketing for crawl space. I can hire a couple of tradesmen, buy some saws. You know, we can do it. And, you know, lots of handymen do this also. But what I like about this business as a franchise is that there are a whole bunch of people who are not necessarily entrepreneurs in, as far as taking things from zero to one from total scratch. But they ha- they're enough of a, you know, they're a smart person and they're a capable business owner, but probably not a capable entrepreneur. Um, and that's a very different skill set. Yep. So, and there's many more capable business owners in the world than capable entrepreneurs in the world. So this takes a business that is relatively simple and kind of gives you in a box, here's the branding, here's how you do the local marketing, here's how you position it, here's what you call it, here's the total playbook. And none of it's rocket science, but there's a lot of people out there for whom this is valuable you know, they've pre-identified the market. They've pre-identified that there's demand here, which is hard sometimes, right? When you're starting a new business, 
And they're saying, here's the man, here's exactly the playbook to go do it. If this excites you, if you want to be a crawl space guy, here's how to make $200,000 a year. And I think that's valuable. It's great. Uh, you know, for a lot of people. It's great. I mean, and I, well, as a, uh, as a contrarian who doesn't, has problems with authority and a claustrophobic, this is precisely the wrong business for me, but I, t- <laughs> I totally dig what you're saying. Yeah. I'm yeah. Cla- yeah. Like those people that go into caves, what's wrong with you? Like, this is like, I'm so claustrophobic. I have no idea why they would do that. But yeah. I, I think what this is, I think you're right on. Like, this is cool because you start to see these small general contractors either fall into good buckets. They're great contractors and terrible salespeople, or they're great salespeople and terrible operators. And uh, you know, this is a way for that person who's a mediocre salesperson or but friendly and poor at entrepreneurship, but great at operations to just come in and kill it. And I think Evan's email said that and encapsulated that really well. Like this is for the person who can make the trains run on time. And um, I like it. Super cool. What would you guys say if, if you were thinking about kind of risks, right? If, if you're thinking about doing this, what are the, what are the kind of high risk categories that you would try and mitigate? Seems to me like a lot of the risk is on the very front end. Like, is there demand for this in my area? And it seems like they've done, uh, Evan described in his emails to us, they've done a lot of data science. It sounds like niching down their various markets based on are there crawl spaces in this market? you know, whether demographics of the customer, you know, can they pay for this service, et cetera. And it sounds like they've done a lot of the work in kind of identifying where the demand should be uh, in different geographic areas, which again, I think is the value of this franchise system, right? Somebody, you know, if you just started this business on your own in a city and you're like, oh, surely there's demand for this, but, you know, for unforeseen reasons, like maybe there's not a lot of crawl spaces in your area, you know, or whatever it might be. That's where your business could fail is you just can't find the demand, even if you could service it fantastically. So I think one of the big risks on this, which they've done a good job of mitigating, is doing the hard data work up front to say, is there probably demand in this market? And it sounds like hopefully they have the discipline to not sell franchises to people who are going to fail in the markets where there's probably not demand for this. So I think one of the biggest risks would be are there people looking for this service? And can you prove that to me before I open this franchise? Um, it sounds like they've, I, I would ask a lot of questions. And I also talked to a lot of existing franchisees about where their leads come from, whether they're organic or not. Yeah. I think you're, the hassle with this is always going to be the typical hassles that you run in these small services businesses, pain in the ass customers and pain in the ass employees. You're going to be challenged to find people that want to crawl around with a respirator on in a hundred degree weather in Texas, you know, looking for wood rot. Like that's going to create a lot of kind of, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of hugging and loving and caressing to get people that are going to want to do that job and are going to stick around for it. You know, I think I think really that means just going into something like this with your mindset that, you know, there's going to be some. You got to get your hands dirty, literally, in terms of you know, understanding how it works and getting in there and doing crawl space work yourself and be an expert in it, but then also managing people who are going to be pretty challenging on both sides, both the customers and the employees. Yeah, because this is around real estate transactions, right? So you're typically working on a time frame. They need your service right now. They're trying to sell their house. It's got to get fixed. So you're probably going to have high emotions uh, from the customer side. <laughs> well, they talk about the, your customer base and it's like, oh, like... <laughs> Real estate agents, title companies, people buying houses, people selling houses, pest control companies, like except for the pest control companies, that those are all drama centric 
<laughs> drama centric people. So, you they know, are, they, although I will say, uh, oftentimes when you're selling your service that is very modestly priced as a percentage of a transaction that is occurring, it can be very easy to maintain a high price and good margins, which might be part of what's going on here. Because, you know, if they're, if a house is transacting for, you know, 300, 500, a million dollars, you know, or more, and they got to spend four grand on the crawl space to actually be able to do that transaction, you know, depending on who's paying for it, you know, they might not like it, but they'll kind of hand wave it. They're not going to negotiate for, you know, instead of $4,000, $3,500, or, you know, they just want it done now. Right. Um, so I think that would help you whenever you're selling ancillary services around large transactions, uh, it can be easy to make too much money. Uh, you just gave the entire business case for investment banking. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, yep. and deal lawyers. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> what I will say is, you know, the thing I like about this, I come from kind of the the traditional MA background that really looks lovingly at home services and you know, HVAC and plumbing and like some of these really kind of stable, durable, blue-collar type demands. And what I've seen, right, is that it's really hard to make HVAC work in a residential model in particular because it's all about customer acquisition cost. And you also have just a very, very kind of hot competitive market with all the same issues, right? You've got to find people who are willing to be in a hundred degree heat in a crawl space, you know? Now it, it doesn't have kind of the exact same service and maintenance and recurring revenue components as HVAC, but, but it's, I think, much less competitive in terms of the other folks who can provide this service. It's just not nearly as as well covered. Yeah. Cool. All right. Hey, that's a good one, Mills. I would say let's move on to our fun one for today. Uh, if you guys are cool with that, it is a watch own a watch brokerage, basically. So we got this teaser sent by a, a listener. So we have very little data, but I will I will tell you about it. And then I think we're probably in a place to uh, talk about it a bit without having kind of full NDA sign and all that stuff. So it is a pre-owned luxury watch business. So last year they did, they did about 2.7 million in top line revenue, NOI, net operating income, uh, was claimed to be about 500 grand. So they did 500 grand in profit on 2.7 million in revenue. Uh, and basically that ends up being three and a half times times NOI, times profit. So been around since 2017 and it is a pre-owned watch business. So basically there is a, you know, a brokerage that they claim happens with almost no marketing, did 2.7 million in sales and it grew last year 12% year over year. And profits grew by about 20%. And they trumpet how that shows that the not only are their sales going up, but the margins are growing up as well. The uh, the teaser here gives you some ideas about how you can grow the thing, but generally uh, they aren't doing a ton of PPC and, and that type of advertising because they claimed it gave them too much business. So it came originally from a consignment sales business and they've switched to owning their own inventory and reselling them. So... They have a bunch of other ideas in here in the teaser about how to grow the business as well. They, there's some interesting stuff in here about how trading in used watches is a pretty specialized skill, but a, they claim that you could outsource that to contractor watchmakers if you don't want to become an expert in trading luxury watches uh, and antique watches and stuff like that. So 
Uh, and they're, they will give you a detailed trading video on how you can uh, value pre-owned watches if you're going to become a, uh, a proprietor of this business. Uh, located in Florida, uh, they claim it can be done anywhere. And uh, all of the inventory can fit in a single gun safe. That making, was my favorite part. <laughs> making transfer or move relatively easy. So that's what we know. This is just a teaser, but uh, a listener submitted this thinking it looked like it was pretty fun. So what do you guys think? Do you want to buy a pre-owned luxury watch brokerage with a bunch of fancy watches and a gun safe? I have to say, I'm just so not a watch guy. So, <laughs> so this is not the right business for me, but it's an interesting one. So they evolved. It seems like they started on consignment. Is it consignment locally, perhaps, or consignment virtually? You know, We can't really tell from the teaser. And then they decided that instead of making marketplace margins, they would rather make uh, retailer margins and started carrying their own watch inventory, um, which I thought was an interesting move because that's typically businesses try to go the other way. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, Amazon has, has built a monster business moving from that first party model where they carry inventory to that third party model um, where they're just the marketplace and take a commission. Uh, so I thought it was kind of interesting that these guys chose to go the other way. Uh, what you get when you do that is you do get better margins, but you have a bunch of money tied up in watches in a gun safe. Right. And I mean, I know it may be physically small, but there's probably a lot of value in that gun safe, which is why it's a gun safe and not a drawer. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so you, what you do is when you switch from that kind of asset light model to the inventory carrying model, you have to invest a bunch of money in inventory. And so a calculation sometimes people don't do, they go, oh, my margins are up. But sometimes they don't calculate the return on all the money they end up tying up in inventory. Uh, and sometimes the, uh, the break-even can be a little bit closer uh, than it initially seems once you account for cost of capital uh, yeah. in inventory. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they went the other way with it. Yeah, for sure. Bill, how easy is managing inventory as somebody who does this on a regular basis? Uh, not easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, because you got to have just the right amount. You can't have too much and you can't have not enough. The thing that's a little bit different about this one, it seems, is that everything is one of one. So, like for us, you know, we'll be have purchase orders for fifty thousand pieces, and if we actually have demand for seventy thousand pieces, that sucks because now we just missed out on twenty thousand pieces of sales. But on the other hand, I don't have to continually be sourcing new inventory either, right? I just I can sell fifty thousand of the same thing. Whereas for these guys, you know, it's pre-owned watches, so everything is one of one which means they're having to continually source inventory, receive it in, kind of create a new SKU, uh, track it all. Like everything's one of one. So you just get a little bit more overhead. Now, that being said, I'm selling $20 bottles of face cream. They're probably selling $10,000 watches, right? So it's probably worth it to do for that kind of transaction value. But it's interesting. I know, you know, Michael, you had some comments around kind of the this type of business model in some ancillary in the sneaker industry specifically that I thought were pretty interesting. Oh yeah. Uh, that would be important to know about. Yeah. Well, I think there's this whole category. Thank you very much for at least making you feel like what I said before was at least somewhat intelligent, but the, you know, I think there's this whole category of businesses like these, uh, this watch dealing, uh, baseball cards, collectibles, tickets, like event tickets, like they have this whole thing where the people that seem to do really well in those are the people that want to nerd out and really understand those things deeply and play the market, right? They love talking about it. They love dealing with it. 
you know, uh, I have a friend that owns a chain of uh, collectibles, like base card shops. And like, he's like, yeah, the Dirk Nowitzki 2020, whatever is like doing this. And, you know, and in the same way you hear ticket brokers talk about their ticket inventory, like they just nerd out on it. And, you know, for me, if I was to buy this business or look into it, I would be definitely scared if I don't love watches, like, am I going to be at a competitive disadvantage top to bottom on this business just to start with? I don't, I'm also interested if typically this business attracts somebody who just loves watches and wants to nerd out about them, why are they selling? They seem to be doing pretty darn well, right? This doesn't, doesn't necessarily indicate that there's a long in the tooth seller or somebody that would be, you know, 75 and should be thinking about, you know, retiring and cashing out. I'm curious what, why are they getting, getting out of the business at this point? Yeah. I, I would wonder too, like, you know, so it's a bunch of watches in a gun safe, like, is this a business or is this a hustle? Like, is this like a guy, like a jeweler who's flipping watches, you know, or is this like, is there sustainable demand here? Is there sustainable inventory sourcing? Like where do all the watches come from? Or like, if you were just a watch geek, could you set up, you know, billswatchgeek.com and start hustle flipping watches? I yeah. just, there's not enough in the teaser to really know, like, is this a business or is this this guy's hobby that he's put a, a price on? Right. Well, I'd be willing to bet there's zero employees other than the owner. Yeah. He's, like, he's, you wouldn't you wouldn't need them, right? You just go over to the gun safe, you take the thing out, you take some pictures, you know, you you post it. You you text the guy and say, Hey, how does 15 grand sound? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think going back to the sneaker analogy, you're seeing kind of a, a structural change in the sneaker stuff going on where there's these verticalized, very narrow niche online kind of exchanges where people are are building that kind of, you know, basically an eBay for, for high-end sneakers um, around some, you know, there's two or three of them that are have gotten pretty popular. I would be willing to bet the same thing's going to start happening at watches if it hasn't already. And you have to think about, well, how's that going to, is that going to create a more efficient market where potentially some of this margin would go away, especially if this is the type of guy who's, you know, calling his rich friend and being like, hey, I got to a 1968 Roly, whatever, right? Do you want to buy it? A lot of that can really start to, to trim into margins. I have one other thought on this one. You know, they the asking price is about 1.75 million, which they're saying, look, this is just over a three and a half times multiple, but it's plus inventory, right? So uh, if any instance I've ever heard of someone acquiring a business and also having to acquire inventory, whether it's included in the purchase price in it or in addition to the purchase price, is that you know no inventory audit is ever too good. You know you can never audit the inventory enough. And I've just heard horror stories, and I'm sure you guys may have some of you know I bought what I thought was let's just say four hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory, but it was stale or slow moving or it wasn't marked correctly, and all of a sudden I paid four hundred thousand dollars, but it was actually worth you know I was only able to get one hundred and eighty out of it or something like that. Oh, that is a great point in this business, Mills, because the thing and the thing that makes that especially scary in this business is the seller knows way more about watches than you do, yeah. the buyer, right? So he can more accurately value his inventory than you, which means that who knows, maybe he accidentally overpaid for a watch and he hasn't been able to move it or his cost basis is too high. Well, he's going to sell it to you at cost, not at fair market value. That's, a, that's something I see sellers try to pull all the time. They unload, they go, oh, well, it's fair. You know, I'll just sell you the inventory at cost. 
And I go, well, what if the cost is too high? What if you made a mistake? You know, what if you have too much? What if you can't sell it? Like you get to, I'm going to bail you out of all of your inventory mistakes all at once, you know, and make them all my inventory mistakes. Uh, and at least in, in typical businesses, you can see, oh, this, this isn't moving. You know, you have too much of this based on historical averages, but all the inventory in this business is one of one. And I bet some of these watches he does sit on for six months or a year, right? Because it's probably a, you know, a specialized buyer you got to find. But so you'd have no way of knowing if he'd had a watch in inventory for six months and he thought, you know, that was kind of a mistake and he might not ever be able to sell it. He's going to sell it to you at cost. And now it's your problem. Um, And that would really scare me because I don't know anything about watches. Yep. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Cool. Well, I think in terms of a discussion to amount of information provided uh, ratio, that was our best one ever. So, well, (laughs) well done, guys. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll we'll stop there for this episode and uh, be back. uh, Be back for the next one.